This is episode 140 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Michelle Graham. Michelle is the Senior Manager of the Speech-Language Pathology Department at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. She completed her graduate training at Hunter College and has worked in acute rehab, LTAC, and acute care settings. In addition to her administrative responsibilities, Michelle continues to work in both the inpatient and outpatient settings and specializes in dysphagia assessment and management across adult populations. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This episode is sponsored by Craig Goldslager of Utterly Financial. Craig is not your typical financial advisor. He works exclusively with us, SLPs, and private practitioners across the country to create simple, actionable financial plans. Craig is the spouse of a busy SLP. He knows we didn't learn about finances when we earned our C's. Nobody told you what to do about your student loan debt, how to protect your income, ways to save and invest, or even how to start or sell your private practice. Working with Craig and his team will not only improve your finances, but it will allow you to free up time and energy to focus on your family, your work, and what you love most. I know many of you, many of us, are stressed about our finances. Craig is opening up his calendar exclusively to listeners of the Swallow Your Pride podcast and offering a free 30-minute consultation. You should take advantage of this. Visit utterlyfinancial.com forward slash SYP to set up a time with him. That's utterlyfinancial, U-T-T-E-R-L-Y, financial.com forward slash SYP to set up a time with him. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Teresa. Thanks for having me on. Yes, thank you for joining me. Tell the people who you are. Uh, My name is Michelle Graham. I'm the Senior Manager of the Department of Speech Pathology at Lenox Hill Hospital, uh, part of Northwell Health uh, here in Manhattan. I love that you wanted to come on and talk today. And if people don't know before, obviously I have people say what they want to talk about and what they'd like to share. And Michelle just wrote in some things that people haven't even really considered or would know about. Reading some of these, even being an SLP myself, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, duh. Like, of course this stuff needs to be considered. Of course this stuff needs to be addressed. And so I'm so glad that you came on and and want to talk about some of this stuff because I think this stuff is just so multifaceted. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen such a big arc of care since this crisis started, getting to all the different aspects of that. I'm not sure we'll even have time for it today, but I hope that we'll have time to discuss some things that maybe haven't been featured so much in the news. Well, and, and that's really what I would really love to talk about. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, maybe, maybe let's dive into that stuff first, because I think that stuff is worth some attention. Sure. So just by way of background, Lenox Hill is a fairly small hospital in New York City versus some of our competitors. We have relatively few beds, only about somewhere between 350 and 400 beds under normal times. And Starting late March, the hospital opened up about five units for the influx of COVID patients. And I would say at our peak, we had about 320 or so COVID positive patients here. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it it happened very quickly. 
so actually in that immediate stage, our department wasn't really being consulted at all. I had my staff on a rotating schedule and about maybe a week to 10 days in, as we started seeing some of those patients coming off of ventilators and some of the less critically of the critically ill patients who maybe hadn't been intubated, we started to get referrals. And then all of a sudden, it was just like an onslaught of referrals. Previously, we considered ourselves to be busy with maybe like 10 to 12 consults a day. And we were getting 20, 25 consults a day. So it's quite an intense scene here. And what we found early on and continue to find is that these patients are presenting with this sort of COVID encephalopathy, the extreme deconditioning, just incredibly, incredibly weak, dysarthric, dysphonic. I think you had a guest on a week or so ago from Los Angeles who was saying they had a younger population and weren't seeing those profound impairments. But for sure, we were seeing patients who on our initial assessment didn't even recognize that we were bringing a spoon to their mouth. And these were patients who maybe had COPD or diabetes as a comorbidity, but not with any history of dementia or CVA, anything that you would anticipate to cause these sorts of problems. And, you know, we've seen a whole range of outcomes through this process. So for as many patients who, you know, four or five days later after that initial assessment were then talking to us and eating and drinking, there were others that were reintubated or just hadn't made any progress at all. So for the patients who we were able to very slowly and cautiously start on diet, one of the big concerns then became, well, how are they actually going to get this nutrition? Just because we had said they were safe to be on a diet didn't mean that they were capable of feeding themselves yeah, or that they had an appetite. Also, prior to the crisis, we had a fairly robust volunteer feeding program at the hospital, but that all got put on hold, of course. And so now we have staff that's completely exhausted, overwhelmed, trying to be conservative in their use of PPE. And so finding people who could actually go into these patient rooms and feed them safely with all of the precautions we had recommended, making multiple attempts if the patient wasn't awake the first time, became a real concern. We had a lot of patients who we had started on diets but continued to keep NG tubes in for maybe another week or so after we had started their diet just because they just weren't getting the oral nutrition. Yeah, yeah. And with that, um, we also recognized that oral care was a big issue. Many of these patients complain of dehydration and you see from your initial assessment that they are so dehydrated, just that really dry, cracked tongue. On the ICUs, I think they were still getting decent oral care while they were intubated using the whole the suction kits. But as they got stepped down, once they were extubated, they were just not a priority in the care, the, the routine care. And again, not because anyone was purposely avoiding it. It just you know didn't really rise up. So just finding people 
to give patients the proper care for oral hygiene was another issue. Yeah. And we've worked pretty closely with our intensivists and our nurse managers to try and communicate, look, anytime somebody's going in the room, just rub a swab. <laughs> this patient just makes some yeah, attempt, yeah. whoever it is that goes in, resident, nurse, anyone. And it definitely helped, but it's something that we still continue to see requires a lot of communication and, and real intention on the part of the staff to just keep that in the front of their minds. Yeah, yeah. I want to back up a little bit and talk about, I think you kind of coined it like hypoxic encephalopathy right. or really, is that what they're calling it now? Or is so, that, I, you know, I think people are still tossing around a bunch of different yeah. terms for what we're seeing. Is it just this sort of post ICU syndrome? Is it this COVID encephalopathy? Is there, yeah. you know, there certainly are patients with increasing number of stroke from this disease process. We've actually been working very collaboratively with our neurology team. They had reached out to us and said, hey, we've been getting consulted a lot. What are you guys finding? And so they've been starting to do some EMG testing and some MRIs, trying to put some pieces together. I'm not really sure that anyone has really put their finger on it exactly. It's probably yeah. a, a little bit of all of the above. Yeah, I think also sometimes just from a respiratory point of view, these patients are so weak. The dysphonia, the hypophonia, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. And I've been working in acute care for 13 years. I've spent a lot of time in ICUs, but this is really a different presentation. Yeah. It's so fascinating. I was looking through our outline of what we were going to talk about. And one of my good friends is actually an OT. She's working exclusively at the COVID hospital here. And she had just texted me. I literally was reading your outline. She had texted me and she said, Hey, have you guys heard anything? Like, she's like, my patients just are out of it. And she's like, we can't figure out like, is it a delirium? What kind of cognitive changes? Like, she's like people that had no prior history. Right. And I was like, that's really funny that you're messaging me this right now, because I'm just about to have a, a podcast with a woman that brought that up too. So clearly, there's obviously something to it. Yeah, yeah, we've we've seen it, I would say in the majority of the COVID patients we've seen, there have been one or two that have been totally fine. But it's definitely the exception rather than the rule. And interesting also that you just brought up your OT friend because we actually started to work with our OTs as part of the people who could help feed some of these patients. And they were saying to us, well, maybe we should just put them on program. And I said, well, I'll leave that up to you guys to decide. But these are not patients that I think I could put on a swallowing therapy program because they're just not able right now to participate, to follow yeah. the directions. So it has taken, I would say, on average, about two weeks before we start seeing patients sort of really come to and be wow. able to be more involved in their own care and in their healing. Wow. Are they coming out of the ICU at that point or how many kind of days are you? So, yeah. yeah, most of them are out of the ICU at that point. We are consulted also on the ICU. We're moving much more slowly with the ICU patients once they are stepped down and onto the regional medical floors. That's where we're starting to see some changes in, I don't even know how to describe it. They're 
awake. I wouldn't necessarily say alert. And you can tell that they are present. You know, they can answer, you know, all your orientation questions. They understand that they're in the hospital. But there's this lack of drive. And I don't know if it's all respiratory or all neuro or all of it. Yeah. It takes a while for them to really sort of come back. That's so fascinating. Has neurology kind of expressed what they're seeing on MRI or anything? Or So I have only heard back from the neurologist who's been doing the EMGs. And he says so far he's just seeing like a diffuse muscle atrophy, nothing more specific than that. We've been keeping a spreadsheet that we share with them of our mutual patients. And so I think once we have some more numbers from those mutual patients, we'll be able to talk more specifically about what's happening. Very strange. Very fascinating. Yeah. Of course, no one wrote the manual on how to deal with this stuff. So, (laughs) And the craziest thing about it is just yesterday, I saw a patient who was hospitalized on March 12th was intubated on the 20th, then was traked on April 9th. I don't remember what date he came off of the ventilator, but he's been on trach collar for at least a couple of days. So we were just consulted yesterday for a passimere valve and had a couple of these consults. And every time, you know, we go in, we put on all of our gear and then we occlude the trach cub and like, there's nothing and there's no attempt. And it's like, ugh, so... I really pressed the attending intensivist. I was like, is it you know, really worthwhile for me to go in here? And he had gone in the room and I was like, good, you know, cover his trach, you get anything? And, and I could hear like from the doorway that the patient was voicing. Yeah. And so we went in and proceeded with the passing valve. And actually this patient was completely cognitively intact and he was able to talk about what a crazy experience to be in March and now be in May and sort of just waking up to the world and and learning what happened. So that's the flip side of it, which is just like, why you've been through so much? Are you okay? But 80% of the other people I've seen can barely say their name. Yeah. Yeah. That is wild. Totally wild. So yeah, these are the the mysteries that we're still trying to understand. Yeah. Yeah. What else, Michelle? Let's see. There's how we've been making some decisions on starting diets, what we've been seeing from O2 saturation and types of respiratory support. We have actually been doing clinical exams on patients with high flow nasal cannula and a non rebreather on top of that. And, you know, maybe take the non rebreather off to, you know, to give them something to trial. And then their O2 sats drop from, say, like 94 to 88 and feeling like, you know, never in my training, in my career, would I think this is something safe to do. And now here I am saying, okay, let's keep going, you know, let's just take a break. And so just really having to take all of these things into consideration, are they becoming more tachypnic? Some of our intensivists are saying, yeah, if they're breathing at 18, maybe stop there. We don't want them going above that. But previously, we would have been concerned already. So just really trying to adapt our thinking to 
how far can we push patients? And we've actually worked out a protocol with our ENT team to scope some of these patients and start doing fees. So uh, many of the patients who we had seen like three, four times that we just could never get comfortable clinically, we would then ask the medical team to re-swab the patients. And if they come back with a negative swab, then we would see the patients for fees with ENT. The residents have been on a much lighter schedule because so many surgeries have been postponed. So they were available to work with us and they had purchased maybe a hundred or 150 so disposable scopes. So we're using those, not because it makes any difference in the procedure itself and being AGP, just that we don't have to then bring it down to endoscopy and have any problems with contamination. So ENT would then scope with us for fees. And we've only done about four just because it takes so long to get to the point where you feel like the patient's actually appropriate for it. But we've actually been really surprised then when we do a fees to not see profound swallowing impairments. We've been able to put three of the four patients on diets after doing the fees, which couldn't understand from our clinical assessment what's happening with their voice. Is it changing? Is it sounding more wet? And then going in and and having the endoscopic view just changed everything and, and really did help us then progress the patient's care. That's great. That's been a really important part of this process for us to have some sense of control in, yeah, in what yeah. we're recommending. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I know it's so hard because I know some places are allowing fees, some aren't allowing fees. So it's like the places that aren't, you just have to rely on your clinical skills. And it's just, I can't imagine, especially for a population that we know nothing about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's definitely been a lot of discussion in the field. I think some of your prior guests, and I think most of the like position statements have said, you know, really try not to do in endoscopy unless it's medically necessary. And, you know, what does it really mean for something to be medically necessary? In some circumstances, it seems so obvious, but in others, it's less obvious. You know, when you've had, when you have a patient who's had an NG tube in already for three weeks and potentially may still need it for another couple of weeks, just because of that diffuse weakness and inability to feed themselves, you still want to know, like, all right, I know you're getting nutrition, but are we moving forward? Are you getting any better? And I feel that it's really our responsibility to, yeah, you know, we work a lot with the head and neck population. And so I know there's lots of times we say, look, you eat, you aspirate sometimes, but you're otherwise mobile. You're disease-free now, you're around. So, you know, you can tolerate some of this. But that's not these patients. You know, yeah, I'm yeah. terrified that we're going to say, okay, well, let's start you on, you know, sips of water. But then if they aspirate some of that water and maybe some of the oral bacteria with that water, this is not the kind of patient that's going to tolerate that. Right. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. We're going to find out a week later that they ended up reintubated. So having fees available 
really has helped us to just get more comfortable with taking these small steps. And I, you know, I was mentioning this gentleman yesterday that I gave the passing your valve to, and I was speaking to his intensivist about what, what are your thoughts on whether or not providing a valve, we might make him cough a little bit more. And, and he said, after we left the patient's room, he's like, look what we just did for him. This man has not spoken to anyone for two months. You tell me that's not necessity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can see the future now. He can see himself getting better. And this was not possible before we went in the room. So I think this this definition of medical necessity is is a little bit harder to define. It, It is. And I know it's, I don't think controversial is the word, but I know for some people, what some people constitute it and what other people constitute it is really different. And I think it depends on different settings. And I just find it so fascinating. You know, I think I was talking to a friend too, and she said that her intensivist was really trying to get fees going because he was saying the same thing that you were in that this population is just so fragile as it is that they're concerned that out of aspiration or something could be the thing that tips them back in the wrong direction. So for them, the benefits outweigh the risks. I know all these statements say weigh the risks and the benefits. If you think of it that way, these benefits are higher than these risks. Absolutely. I felt grateful to our chairman for ENT for working with us on putting together this protocol and allowing us to come up with a process that we feel is reasonable. Yeah, beautiful. I love it. And similarly for modified barium swallow studies, we have done a couple. The great part is that the whole medical staff has been super cooperative when we say, this is what we'd like to do. Can you re-swab this patient? They're like, no problem. There's never any question. I think there's a real sense of camaraderie for all the medical staff that's been here trying to figure out what's the right thing. You know, this is new for everyone. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I I love to hear that, Michelle. (laughs) It's been stunning, you know, like the first time I came in and started seeing the COVID patients, it was definitely this surreal experience. I would think like being on some like lunar mission, you know, everyone's in masks and gloves and these crazy outfits of PPE and bunny suits and just such a strange environment. And then all of a sudden, it's like a month later, and it's just, it's just what you do, you know, and we're so adaptable in that way, which is, um, it's beautiful to see a nurse is maybe in a COVID patient's room and she knocks on the door and whoever is walking by just stops and gets whatever she needs at that moment. I remember one day I was walking down the hallway and this nurse was like, get me an oxygen tank. And I was like, okay. So, you know, I had to inquire around a little bit, but, but there is this sense of everybody working together. I hope it's not unique to Lenox Hill, but I definitely feel it's been a real strength of the whole medical team here. Yeah, yeah. There was a woman I was talking to in Albany, and she was saying that she was talking to some of the doctors and the nurses, and she was helping on the prone team with really how to avoid the trach tube and all sorts of cool stuff. And so I think it's, and I'm in state New York too, so maybe it's just a New York thing, but no, I hope it's, <laughs> I hope it's national. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I tried to recall all the bullet points that I sent you. I think I only got like halfway through it. So if you've got anything there. Yeah, yeah. 
maybe we haven't covered yet. So kind of the new normal for the bedside assessment and workplace in general. I think that's really what I was describing earlier about continuing on with an assessment when you see a patient's O2 sats drop into the mid to high 80s. Previously, we likely would have stopped, not 100%, but that would definitely be a red flag. And now I still am looking at that. It's still part of the picture for me, but I'm much more likely to keep going with that clinical exam, keep doing trials, really see how far I can go. Even if the goal for me walking out of that room is just to tell the team, all right, I don't think he's ready for full meals, but let's start doing sips here and there, you know, ice chips in moderation. And I think it does take more time to get through a clinical assessment than it had previously. Because you have all, you know, in addition to this new medical fragility, we're working under all of this PPE. And so even just trying to make my basic commands understood to the patient. This really requires extra effort. I don't know how many times I've stuck my tongue out into my mask (laughs) to demonstrate. So, you know, really just having to be creative in understanding if the patient is following me, if he's not following me, why. These are all things that in the past I just kind of took for granted and it, it really requires some creativity in the room to understand what's going on. But I think we're also getting more efficient at that now as we continue to see these patients. While we certainly don't have as many patients being admitted as we did in March, we still have over 100 COVID patients here. So we're we're still working with them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and whereas a prior length of stay was maybe like, 3.5 days, you know, now we've got these COVID patients here for weeks. What are you guys seeing in this kind of more of a candid conversation, just because I, I work in the post-acute kind of the sniff realm Mm -hmm. and both still being in New York state. I know that's just a huge issue right now. What, what are you guys seeing as far as discharging from the hospital? Are you sending them on to some sort of rehab facility or a lot of them going home or so? Interestingly, it seems like a lot of them are going home, and I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if this is because of the rehab and subacute rehab facilities not having capacity, if they're taking certain precautions, bringing COVID patients in. I'm not sure why, because really, these patients are so deconditioned. I don't know, unless they're getting home care or have skilled family members who can help them. Um, It seems like it would be very hard to transition home safely. There are some patients going to subacute rehab facilities. I think it's an unfortunate thing in our field, and I think also not unique to Lenox Hill, but even prior to COVID, there was not always the best handoff from at least regarding speech pathology from acute care to subacute. I think if patients were lucky, the subacute therapist would reach out to us and say, hey, this patient came in on this diet, but there are no speech notes. Can you tell us what happened? So I'm a little concerned about that continuing on. And and again, now with these more fragile patients, how that will be managed. Hopefully, the same process will happen where the 
subacute therapists reach out to us so we can close the loop for them. But it certainly seems to me like rehab is going to be a really essential part of the recovery for these patients. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I just keep hearing is that, you know, and I've heard from a couple of home health therapists that they're just getting bombarded with these patients now and they're just sicker than they've been, you know, and they're coming without instrumental assessments or like you said, without speech notes. And it may be because they weren't even seen for speech right. in the hospital. So it's 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 so hard that, you know, it's like we've all really just got to fight for our patients at our own levels of care. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. We have postponed all of our outpatient modified barium swallow studies from early March, and we're just starting to put them back on the schedule, I think after May 15th. So hopefully we'll start to have some of these patients come back at least for follow-up in that regard. There definitely is a gap in the communication, and I think it will be really important, you know, also just really for the patient's own sense of safety the gentleman yesterday with the passing muir valve when he heard the intensivist and I talking about having him re-swabbed he said i'm really nervous for the results because Aww. i just i don't want to be sick like this again yeah yeah you know i think patients need that confirmation you know not just from their physicians but from all their rehab therapists who are working with them so you mentioned a little bit about camaraderie within your own hospital, but what about as far as other New York City hospitals? Oh, it's been amazing. There's actually a group in Manhattan that's been meeting, actually, I think even since I was a fellow, was started by one of my old supervisors. And it's it's become this very popular group for hospital-based SLPs. It's called the New York City Dysphagia Study Group. I came and spoke at that last year. Yes. Um, So it's been like turned over and grown into this great big thing. So I think just having been a part of that, you know that your hospital-based SLPs are there for you, even if the CEOs of the hospitals are all in direct competition with each other. I think we still all work together to make sure we're at least following more or less the same same protocols. So I have reached out to some colleagues, local hospitals, Montefiore, NYU, Methodist out in Brooklyn. In particular, we chat a lot. We all text and email each other to say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. What are you guys doing? Are you seeing the same things? It's been really great to have the other New York City speech departments work as colleagues with us. I love that. I love hearing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think in this time, you're really just not doing right by your patients if you're not talking to other people. Yeah, yeah. It's so important that when we have so little to work on, to at least understand that we're not alone in this and that, hey, I tried this today and it worked really well. Maybe you'll find it too. And that's how we learn. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love to just hear about your collaboration with your physicians too and just the respect there is great to hear yeah I think our department we have a pretty solid department here like people stick around and so I think we're 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 known we're known quantity so it's great to have those relationships already established that we can now reach out and 
It's a teaching hospital, so we're always, of course, talking to the interns and residents, but sometimes we just go straight up to the attendees and say, hey, I'm not so comfortable with this. You tell me why it's okay. And, you know, they're like, all right, this is this is what's going to work. This is not going to work. They all have calls with other hospitals within our health system. And, you know, I reached out to them when we were seeing problems with the oral care and when we were early on, when we were getting referrals that were really inappropriate, that, you know, it was just a waste of PPE to go in there. And I know lots of people have talked about doing these sort of direct versus indirect consults. And and we certainly tried and, you know, would talk to the nurses before going into a room. And, you know, a lot of times they would say, well, sometimes a patient wakes up, you could try. And so then we go in and like the patient can't do anything at all. Um, So we had just raised that with um, some of the intensivists and they said, great, we'll, we'll bring it up on our call tonight and see what's happening at other hospitals or just sort of put out the word that you need to cascade this information down to your teams that patients really got to be able to sit up for five minutes and say something, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. to make it worthwhile for that consult. And, and it helped. Good, good. Yeah, that's great. What, what else, Michelle, do you kind of feel like this is like your new normal? It's the new normal for now, as the surgical cases start coming back and we have a little bit more of a mixture in the hospital, we'll have a new normal again. So I described earlier, you know, we've had this arc where it was like really quiet, you know, the calm before the storm, and then we just got slammed. And now things are starting to level off back to our more normal numbers. But they haven't really started the surgical cases yet. It's just this week that they're starting to bring in some of those emergent cases. So I anticipate, again, in the next couple of weeks, a big wave of the remaining COVID patients plus our, gotcha. our you know pre-COVID population. So I think just balancing that caseload for us will be a challenge. I think now that we have the the rush behind us as we go forward, because I believe that there will be more COVID admissions, hopefully it will not look anything like it did in, in March and early April, but, but they for sure will continue to be admitted. But at least now we have this experience behind us and we can approach things with a little bit more comfort as to what we're seeing, know what questions we want to be asking the medical teams. So it is a new normal, but I think it's also going to continue to evolve. How, how do you see staffing for that? Like like you said, now that we've got the, the surgical patients coming back in the mix too. Right. So I've had my full staff here for about three weeks now working there full hours. One thing that has changed is that we completely shut down our outpatient program. So all my outpatient therapists were, well, all, all one and a half of them (laughs) uh, were able to come over to the hospital and help us with our inpatient census. So that's another thing that outpatients are starting very slowly to come back. And a lot of patients aren't even willing to come back at this point. But, you know, that that will start to affect my inpatient staffing. So we'll see how that goes. I do have two part-time therapists in the department, and they may be able to flex up 
we can demonstrate the need. I will say Lenox Hill and Northwell has really been great in terms of helping managers manage staffing needs, um, whether you know it was early on and we needed to have staff working from home, even some unpaid furlough to bringing extra, we had to bring some per diems in on the weekends when we were going through the rush of patients, which I normally only have one person here on the weekends. So we've had great flexibility and understanding from administration. We'll see what it looks like going forward. I definitely can imagine that we'll need additional staffing on the floors for a couple of months. That that seems very reasonable. We're a part of ENT, so we work very closely in our ENT, our head and neck clinic, following the surgeon's patients preoperatively, perioperatively. So as we talk with our ENT surgeons and understand what their caseloads look like, that should help us prepare for staffing on the floors. Yeah. Do you guys keep yourself separate? Like, do you have COVID only staff? We don't. Um, yeah. We have everybody going to all of the floors. I do have one therapist. She's been out on maternity leave, but she was primarily a pediatric outpatient therapist, although she would always pinch hit on the floors when she needed to. I think we will keep her away from the COVID patients. I think for herself and also for the family's peace of mind that she's not been around COVID patients. It's been great for everybody to see a little bit of everything. Seeing the non-COVID patients kind of just reaffirms what you know. It's a little break from the intensity of working with the COVID patients, but also working with the COVID patients makes all of the staff aware of what's going on. We can all talk to each other about what we're seeing. We're a small department and we're close. So it's been good for everyone to compare notes, you know, talk about yeah, it. Yeah. You know, a number of the patients that we saw passed away. And so to just go back to the department and say, hey, do you remember Mr. So-and-so? And it's been important for everyone to be involved. Yeah, yeah. Have any final thoughts, Michelle? Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you again for coordinating this, having me on. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I think this is really a great time for us as a field um, to be having these conversations with our physician peers and being understood and working with respiratory, you know, to talk about how complex swallowing is. I'm really proud of the work that we do. I hope that, you know, with time, we're able to look back at this and look at some data and get to a point where people say, yeah, I did the right thing. I think someone said they really almost feel like they are exclusively an airway manager at this point. Mm -hmm. Like now that they're back doing fees, there's really so much that they're seeing post-extubation. You know, as you said, you're just hearing some really funky you know, dysphonia, hypophonia, things like that. And I think showing what we know and how we can help these patients post-extubation as far as airway management, voicing, swallowing, there's, I think, such a huge, huge role there. Yeah, absolutely. I think there will be a little bit of a delay in terms of those aspects of this disease process getting treated. Obviously, still like the 
the more medically emergent issues being taken care of. But I think down the road, all of the the parts of airway, voice, swallowing will be ongoing problems that yeah. need to be addressed. So I think we're going to be looking at this for a long time. Awesome. Fascinating. Thank you. Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. Any final thoughts? I think we've covered a bit there. Good luck to everyone and stay safe. That's all I can say. Stay safe. Keep wearing your masks. <laughs> I know it's springtime and they really stink to have on all the time, but keep it up. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.